we've been talking about for four weeks that there is good news that God wants you to know what he wants you to do. He wants to be involved in your decisions and he's given us some great resources so we don't have to guess at what it is he wants us to do. Week one, we said the more familiar you are with the providential will of God and the more obedient you are to the moral will of God, the easier it is to discern what God wants you to do and make right decisions. Next, we talked about how God gives us other Christians, mature Christians. And as we go to them for counsel, as we ask them, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Uh, What do you think is the wise thing for me to do? As we listen to them talk, as we listen to them describe what's going on, sometimes it becomes crystal clear what God wants us to do. And um, if you don't want to talk to other Christians, if you have this thing where you don't want to go for counsel before you make a decision, maybe this is a big indicator that you don't really want to know God's will. You don't really want to hear what he has to say in that situation. Last week, we talked about the the Word of God, the Bible, has some principles. And if we'll build our lives on those principles, it'll make it so much easier to make wise choices. And we finished up talking about David. David was hiding in a cave. He'd been anointed king. King Saul's chasing him, trying to kill him. He has the perfect opportunity to kill King Saul. His emotions said to kill him. His counselors said to kill him. Everything, circumstances said to kill King Saul. The one thing that said not to was a principle from the Bible. And the principle said, you dare not replace what God has put in place. And David knew that principle. David followed that principle. He did not kill Saul that day, and God blessed him for that. So we said if you take all of these God-given resources, if you will start to use these things, it begins to narrow down your options. And today I want to twist that focus just a little bit more. In Proverbs twenty-nine eighteen, it says this. This is the New American Standard. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. Now, you've probably, if you've been at church any amount of time, you've probably heard the King James Version of this verse, which says, where there is no vision, the people, what? Perish. I like the message translation. Here it is. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. And then here's the key. But when they attend to what he reveals, this is what we've been talking about for four weeks. God reveals his will to us. He's not keeping it secret. He's given us some huge clues. We just ignore those clues. The person who attends to what what God reveals in his word, the person who attends to what God reveals through other more mature Christians, the last part of the verse says they are most blessed. So in a nutshell today, what we're going to talk about is, number one on your listening guide, poor choices come from a lack of vision, from a lack of seeing what God is doing. And most of the time, it's not because God's hidden. It's because we're not paying attention to what God has already revealed. So here's the idea. God has a big picture vision for your life. I'm going to give you a couple more statements real fast on your listening guide. The clearer the vision, the fewer options that you have, the easier it is to determine God's will and make right choices. The clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier it is to determine God's will. So vision then, last statement there before we talk a little bit, is a destination. It's where you want to end up in life. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. We were at a Rangers game this week. Every year I go to a Rangers game, my family does, for my birthday. And so we went and we watched the Rangers win. And, and I like to get hats. I like to wear hats because I'm bald. And this, you know, you've got to cover this stuff up. And you've got to keep it you know, out of the sun. So I wanted a new hat. And I was in there looking for hats. And, and used to, it, hats would say, one size fits all. Do you know what they say now? One size fits most. 
Because some, you know, there was somebody that sued them and said, this doesn't fit all because you got some with enormous heads and you got some little bitty heads and then it's not going to fit. So now it says one size fits most. Well, here's what I want to tell you. God's big picture view for your life, his vision for your life is not a one size fits most. It is very specific to your life. God created you and he has something that only you can do in this world. And he has that something for you to do in the church. It's very, very specific. Somewhere out there, there's an image of what God wants you to do. It's what could be true, but it goes even further than that. It's what should be true in your life. So believe it or not, God has a vision specific for you for what he wants in your relationships. God has a a vision specific for you what he wants you to do in your job situation or in your marriage, in your parenting. God has a very specific vision for you. So we've got the challenge today is to figure out what could be true in my marriage. What could be true in my finances? What could be true in my relationships? But to move beyond what could be true till we get that conviction deep in our gut that not only could it be true, it should be true. And we're fueled by our convictions to make some changes. When you ask God to give you a vision for those things, the vision gets clearer and clearer. The options get fewer and fewer. And the decisions become easier and easier. Vision is like a puzzle. Now, uh, I've got some pictures. Our, my family loves to do uh, jigsaw puzzles. Put those up there, Caleb. I don't even remember the first one. Oh, yeah, this is a guitar. This was a pretty fun one to do. Now, I haven't done all of them, but we love doing puzzles. Here's another one. And there it is. These are all on the wall of our game room. We have them all over the wall. As we finish them, we glue them together. We stick them up on the wall. Next. I like that one. It's a big old sandwich. It's kind of hard to tell from the side. It's just a huge sandwich. Took a while to do. Next one. Mickey Mouse. We did that one. Was that before or after we went to Disney World? It was after we went to Disney World. We were motivated. And the last one. So we do these puzzles, and here's the deal. Vision is like this. It's like the picture on the front of the puzzle. Now, I picked this one intentionally because down here at the side it says, open and get the big picture. Ah, panoramic view. And this is a beautiful one, my, and, and I can't wait to start doing this. Now, when you have this, I'm one of those guys that, that when you start, you know, if you get the outside, what everybody does, they get the edges, and you go and you put the outside, and then you start going. And I'm, I'm all for that. But I'm the guy that I find something, if I find a little bitty piece, I'm studying the picture. And, you know, my kids are over there and they're like, oh, this one fits here, this one fits here. And, and I'm studying and then I'll get it. And, and the easier, here's the thing. When I have this picture, if I have enough time and with enough effort, I can put the whole puzzle together. And you can too. But if you don't have this and all you have is this, it makes it very difficult, right? Many of us are living our lives without the big picture. God has supplied it, but we're ignoring it. And so we're making decisions on our own. And very often those decisions are are wrong. Most people run out in their lives with no idea where they're headed. No idea of the big picture for the most important areas of their lives. And to me, that just seems kind of foolish. So in this series, we've talked about the providential will, the moral will. They're guardrails to keep you from going over the cliff. We talked about if you'll talk with other Christians, it will narrow down a little bit more. Last week we talked about if you 
um, go to the Bible and find some principles to live your life by like David did. It will narrow it down some more. And today, if you get the vision, the big picture vision that God has for your life, it will narrow it down. And then the narrow road. Some of you have been here this whole year. We talked about weird because normal is, is, isn't working all the way back in, in January. And we said there's a wide road that leads to destruction and the majority, normal people are on that road. And Jesus himself said, but there's a very narrow road that leads to life. And very few are on it. And I think it's the people that use all of these resources of God. They narrow down the will of God. And then the narrow road becomes very, very easy to see. So the clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decisions. All right, so how many of you are single today? That's all right. There's nothing wrong with being single. Okay, those of you who are single, how many of you think... Or, or hope to be married someday. Not think you're going to be married. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. How many of you hope? Come on. It's okay. All right. You need to start thinking today. I don't care what age you are. You need to start thinking today about what marriage could be and what marriage should be. Describe what it looks like. What could be true in your marriage? What could be true in your dating? If you don't get a clear vision now, you know what will happen? You will settle. Janie and I were talking about this last night. The three girls that I dated before Janie let me know that they were ready to get married. And, and even though they were good girls, because I only dated girls, I'd, only, I'd, I'd been trained that you only dated good girls. What did I say? Huh? Good girls. Dude. And I only date one now. One good girl. All right. So I only date good girls. I only dated good girls because I knew and I'd been taught that you're going to marry somebody that you date. And so I was only dating good girls. But even these girls, somehow I knew without somebody telling me, somehow I knew they didn't fit the picture. And so then when when Janie came along and when I started praying and when God really got a hold of me, and when God really got a hold of her, I said, she fits. And it became evident. And actually, he's one of my friends. He's he's on he's a friend of mine on Facebook today. And this dude's got like nine kids, and, and uh, we were playing pool one day. We would, we would go play pool, you know, before lunch because then none of the drunks or anybody were there because, you know, we, he, he had some issues that he was dealing with and trying to stay away from, so we would go play pool. We were playing pool one day, and he goes, he goes when are you going to marry this girl? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, dude, everybody knows she's the one. When are you going to figure it out? In my own time, thank you. A couple weeks later, I went back and I said, dude, you're right. And so he and his wife and my brother-in-law were the only people who knew before I proposed to Janie. Had my parents come down and they all met Janie. And we went to, to uh, um, San Antonio to the Riverwalk because I was living in Austin at the time. And, and she didn't know it and my, my family didn't either. That was, that was like the last step. And, and when everybody, everybody loved her and, and, and just kind of gave me their blessing a week later, I proposed. That was, that was like the last step. You didn't know that was a big test, did you? <clears throat> but, but see, okay, I'd gotten, even though I was a rebellious child, and even though I was a very strong-willed child, I knew that I had to date the right type of women. I knew that my family needed to be involved in the process. And, that, and I'm telling you, I was, I was one of those, if mom told me I couldn't date somebody, I dated her just to spite mom. When I was in a teenager, when I got older, I was I was to the point that I, I knew I, I had to have my family involved in that decision. And so they helped narrow down 
the right choice. Because, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're just thinking, I want to be married someday, you're going to have some issues. But if you'll begin to define it and you'll say, this is what could happen in my marriage. This is what should happen in my marriage. And you begin to think about the big picture, it will eliminate a lot of potential people in your lives today. You've got to look at the big picture. What could be true in your dating? What could be true, um, what should be true in your dating? Don't even talk about him or her. If you're dating somebody right now, they're not even the real issue. The real issue is getting a clear picture of what God wants for your marriage. Talk about that. The type of marriage you want to have, the type of family you want to have, where you want to be, where you want to go to church, all of those type of things. You get a clear picture and you describe what your heavenly father has planned for you. And then you step back and you look at the picture and then you look at him or her. And, and you find out that, that they don't fit. They're from another puzzle. I'm not talking about race. I'm not talking about economic background. I'm not talking about social background. I'm talking about what God has described for you. They do not fit. They're not an option. But I love him or her. So what? You talk to anybody who married solely for the sake of love. And you ask them 15, 20 years later if that was enough. I'm willing to bet the majority of them aren't together anymore. Because love is not enough. Love is a decision. It's a commitment. It's covenant. A covenant is commitment on steroids. Some of you stood up when we did our marriage series and, and you covenanted before God. And, and you said before God, God, may you take my life if I don't uphold this covenant. That's how serious commitment is. You need to marry someone like that. And so I searched for someone till I found the most loyal, dedicated person I could. And I married her. It's not just what could happen, it's what should happen. The clearer picture you have financially of what could be and what should be, the easier it is to make financial decisions. Because is debt really what you want? Because look at this principle from Scripture. Proverbs 22, 7 says, Borrow money and you are the lender's slave. I don't want to be a slave. If you've been in debt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and if you come to Financial Peace University, there are certain things like buying a house. You're going you're gonna to go into debt for that, but that's generally an appreciating asset. It's foolish to go into debt for something that, that declines in value. So I, wanna, I want to do what God tells me to do, and I have a very clear picture of what God wants me to do. And so it makes my decisions very easy because of the picture. You have a clear picture of a preferred future, so what you do is you begin to compare your present with that desired future. Anything that fits, you keep it. It's a puzzle piece that fits. If it doesn't, you toss it out. Now, you do not get to toss out legitimate pieces. All right, this is the puzzle that matches this picture. We don't get to toss out legitimate. Oh, I don't like this piece. This just doesn't work. You don't get to toss out your current spouse because they're not what you thought they'd be. Because when you said, I do, you promised before God. For richer, for poorer. For better, for worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. Now, if I do your wedding, I don't say those things, but I say, will you promise to keep, will you keep these promises as long as you are alive? And you look me in the eye and you say before God, yes. You don't get to change that. Oh, sorry, God, nah, this piece doesn't fit. 
When you said, I do, they became God's chosen person for you. You don't get to toss out your children because they aren't what you thought they would be. Oh, yeah, all of you are like, please, let's have a swap, you know. No. Here's what you do, though. You start asking God to give you a vision of what your marriage should look like and what your parenting should look like. You start to look down the road 5, 10, 15 years, and you say, what do I want my marriage to look like? What do I want my relationship with my children to look like? And you begin doing what you can do to help. What you can do. You can't force them to do anything. Any area that you want to focus on, ask God to give you a clear picture of what could be and what should be. Parenting, marriage, friendship, small groups, children's ministry, job, you name it. God wants to be a part of it. And you say, God, help me to see you. Help me to see your vision for this life that you gave me. And watch how much easier your decisions become. Here's the next statement on your listening guide. Vague ideas are not helpful in decision making. My future is to be married. And? And nothing. I just want to be married. My future is I want to have a job. And? And nothing. I just want a job. Okay? If that's all the planning that you do, if that's your vision, let me tell you about your future in marriage and job. It'll be mediocre. You're being judgmental now. No, I'm just being smart. I'm looking at thousands of years of human history. Almost 30 years of working in churches. Just because you're married in a church doesn't mean something's going to work out. And I'm saying if you don't have a vision of what God wants for your life, what could be and should be, you're going to have a very mediocre life. In our study today, they said that, that lots of men go to work Every day. They do the same thing every day. They go on the same vacation every year. A vacation that they hate. They only do it because they, you know, they think they have to. And then they retire at 65 and they die very shortly after. And they said, because something, something, something. And the lady said, but I think they die of boredom. We're going to find out a definition of manhood. We're going to find out a picture of what it means to be a real man. We're going to find out what, uh, what real men do. We're going to have an adventure as men. And I think all the guys that were there today got excited because they began to get a picture of what it is to be a man. And by the way, I asked these guys, 17 of us, I said, why are you here? And, and every man agreed, at least in, in part, that we don't know what it means to be a man. Nobody's taught us. So we need something to aim at. And, and I told the guys, I said, man, I'm so excited that you're here because our church will only go as far as the men in, in our church. Ladies, I love you. And, and you're awesome. But we need some men to step up to the plate and become the men that God wanted them to be. And then our church takes off because we'll have the blessing of God because the spiritual leaders will actually be leading and not following. So vague ideas aren't very helpful. Instead, define your future. Ask God to reveal it so you can narrow down the options. And if you do, your odds of success go up. So let me tell you this. In your life today, you're making progress wherever the picture is clear. If it's in sports and you're dedicating time to sports and you have this idea in sports who you want to be, then you're making progress there. Your life is fuzzy. The picture is fuzzy and you're not making, pres uh, making progress where you don't have a clear picture, where, where you're just existing. I want to show you from Scripture today a man who invited God into the process 
of his decision making. And because he invited God in, because he got a clear vision of what God wanted him to do with his life, he was enormously successful. His name was Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles or if you're uh, on your smartphones, you can go to version. you can get to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament and he's one of my favorite guys. Uh, I say that all the time, don't I? I love God's word and I love the practicality of it. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, the cupbearer, this was a pretty important job for the king. It's a really risky job if you're the cupbearer. That meant you tasted the wine, you tasted the food so that nobody could assassinate the king. You were dispendable. The king was not. So you drank and he watched you. If you didn't keel over dead, then it's okay. He could eat, right? Pretty, pretty important job, but <laughs> not a job that I necessarily want. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to a king whose predecessors had destroyed Israel and taken them captive. At least they took the smart ones and the pretty ones. That's in the Old Testament. Because, see, if you were the bigger, badder army, what you would do is you would come in and you would conquer uh, people, and they had walls built up around their cities, and they would destroy the walls. They would come in, they'd take the bright ones and the pretty ones, and they would assimilate them into their culture. They'd leave behind the poor ones, because the poor ones can't bring a riot. They can't cause a riot. And so uh, Nehemiah is in this situation where he's 800 miles away, and one day some men came back because... God had said, I'm going to judge Israel if you disobey me. God knew they were going to disobey. So God sent a prophet and he said, when you disobey, I'm going to judge you. Your enemies are going to come and they're going to destroy your land and they're going to take you away captive for 70 years. After the 70 years, I will start bringing you back. So Nehemiah was written after this 70 years of captivity. Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah, Ezra was a priest. Ezra had already gone back and he had started rebuilding the temple. He took a bunch of priests and some other Jews back with him, and, and Ezra was a man of God. Great story. You need to read his book. It's a short book. He starts rebuilding the temple. So some men come to Susa. Susa is the winter capital for the king of Persia. Some men come to Susa, 800 miles from Jerusalem. They've been to Jerusalem, and, and Nehemiah says, what's going on? One of the men was his brother, and they said, dude, it's bad. The, the walls are destroyed. We're a laughingstock. Even though we have a temple, there is no safety. Nobody believes in our God because of the, the state of our city. And so Nehemiah hears this and he becomes burdened. And, and by the way, this is how vision always starts, as a burden. You hear about something, you go, that's not right. Something could be done about that. And then as the vision grows, you say something should be done about that. So this deep concern comes to Nehemiah about his hometown. But distance is his biggest problem. How do, you, how do you do anything in that day from 800 miles away? How do you do anything in our day? My parents are 500 miles away. I talked to my sister this week. And, and she lives in the hometown, and they drive to Amarillo. Amarillo is about the same distance from Borger as Palestine is from Tyler. And so sometimes two or three times a week, my sister's taking my 90-year-old dad, my 86-year-old mom to doctor's visits. And I feel totally hopeless. I'm like, I wish I could be there. wish I could drive them. But, but it's, it's a helpless feeling to be so far away. Not only is he 800 miles away, he works for a king that's really not all that interested in his problems. So Nehemiah begins to pray. If you read the, the first chapter, it says that he fasts and he prays and he weeps and he mourns before he does anything. And then there's this fascinating story about how the king sees him and he goes, you don't look too happy today. And see, that's a death penalty thing. You're, you're never supposed to be unhappy in the presence of the king. Nehemiah, you look sad today. And Nehemiah goes, so I prayed to the Lord of heaven. I mean, that's just a little popcorn prayer because he's been praying for about two months. And he said, here's the deal, king. My hometown lies in ruins and it's breaking my heart. King says, what do you need from me? 
I need permission to go. And I need letters telling everybody on the way that I have your permission to go. Ken says, done. Nehemiah goes back and he starts rebuilding the wall. When he gets there, he finds all these problems. Jews are ticked off at Jews. They're not working together. There's all these guys in other provinces that have power and they're trying to keep the Jews down. So you can imagine they are very threatened whenever Nehemiah shows up and he starts building the wall because everybody's defending their property. This is my territory. This is my territory. The last thing they wanted to happen was Israel to regain power. And then they've got somebody else to fight with over whose property is what. So we come to Nehemiah chapter 6. And for two months, Nehemiah has been rebuilding the wall. And by the way, they finished the wall in 52 days, which was unheard of in that time. So they threatened, they had been threatening for two months to kill the Jews. And so the Jews were discouraged. They'd been threatening to uh, tell the king of Persia, oh, you're just starting a riot, a rebellion. And, and so they've been trying to stop the work for two months. They couldn't stop it. So in Nehemiah chapter 6, it's their last ditch effort to stop what was going on. And I want you to watch what happens. Nehemiah 6 verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. All right, you've heard of the good, bad, and the ugly? This is the evil, the bad, and the ugly. There's no good in any of these guys. Sanballat is the head bad guy. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gaff was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Okay, the wall's up, but there's no gates, and they're like, ah, this is our last chance. We can get this guy. So the good, the, uh, I mean, the evil, bad, and the ugly, they decide we're going to send a message to Nehemiah. And, and the message said, um, let us meet together in the city of Ono. O-N-O. Exactly. And I'm thinking, bad guy 101 says you don't invite the good guy to a place called Ono. How stupid is that? It's 20 miles away from Jerusalem. Why did they want him to come? They wanted to take him out. They couldn't stop the work on the wall, so they're going to take out the leader. So look what happens in verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together. Brothers, need to get along. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of... Oh, no! Look what it says. But they were scheming to harm me. See, good guy 101 says, you don't go meet the bad guys in a place called... Oh, no! All right? Everyone knew for two months these guys were the main bad guys. Everyone knew they were wall opposers, which means they were God opposers. And so when, it, when they sent him a message, oh, come meet with us out here where no one's there to help you, where you have no walls, 20 miles away from what God wants you to do. This was a very, very easy decision for Nehemiah. But here's the thing. Nehemiah doesn't go, you stupid men, which is what I would say. Nehemiah's reply was brilliant. Look at it in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it alone and come down to you? Four times they sent the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. So I picture Nehemiah. He's on a ladder. He's finishing up some part of the wall. A messenger comes running up, tugs on his pant leg. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the bad guys want to meet you in Ono. And I see Nehemiah just, you know, kind of, Catching his thoughts and scratching his beard. And he goes, tell him this. I'm involved in something very important right now. I can't come down. What I'm doing right here is more important than what they want me to do. Because he knew they were trying to take him out. I cannot come down. Four times they tried it. Four times he says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. 
Eventually, the motives of the bad guys come out, and, and it's very evident. They actually state in their letter, this is what we're trying to do. We do not want this to happen. But see, their motives didn't matter because Nehemiah was looking at God. Nehemiah had a very clear picture from God, what he was supposed to do, rebuild the walls. Anything that helped him rebuild the walls, yes. Anything that didn't, no. It was a very, very easy decision. So he had the big picture. He threw out anything that didn't work. If it fit, cool, yay, help me build the wall. Anything that didn't fit, it's gone. His options were limited to what was on the picture. Everything else was a big fat no. When we started New Life, we said we're going to reach people who are far from God, help them connect with God and with other people. Anything that fits that picture, we say, yes, yes, we're going to do that. Anything that doesn't, we say no. We have people come here all the time. And, and some people hadn't been in church for years, but we have, we've had people come here who are from other churches that, that want us to do what other churches have done. Now, again, you've got to understand, I'm not trying to be cocky about this. I'm not trying to say my way is better than anybody else's way. But we have a very clear picture of what God has called us to do. Reach people who are far from God. Help them connect with God and with other people. The reason we started New Life is because most of us who, who started this church had been in churches that were not reaching people for God. And we said, we've got to do something new. We're not better than anyone else. We just want to be different. We, I have no desire to be one of those, because I, I, I know a lot of these guys. I have no desire to be a pastor that, that builds this flock, you know, and gets it a little bit bigger and warns the sheep when they get too near the fence. Don't go there. You know, I don't want to be that guy. And then when this flock goes really well, move to another flock that's a little bigger and, of course, has more benefits. And then move from that one to a bigger one that has more benefits and more pay and all that stuff. I have no interest in that trash. Because in the Baptist church, if you're really, really successful, you eventually move up to be a denominational worker and you don't even have a congregation. As if that's the goal. I've had men tell me, you need to do this because this would be a good career opportunity. I don't give a rip about a career opportunity because God said reach people who are far from God. Build a church that's different and keep doing it until you die. That's our plan. So if it fits, we do it. If it doesn't, we don't. Years ago, I served with a pastor. We went on a staff retreat, and uh, we were just kind of sharing. We were gone for several days. And he started sharing his heart with us, and he said, um, my daughter is bitter towards the church. His kids were all adults. They had, he had tons of grandkids. He said, my daughter is bitter towards the church. And he asked her why. And she said, uh, she thought for a minute, she said, Dad, do you realize that you cut short 13 family vacations because there was an emergency at the church? And what you taught us, Dad, was the church was more important than we were. And it just broke this pastor's heart. And he's a great man. He's one of my favorite pastors. He is my favorite pastor to have worked with. And his heart was broken, and I have never forgotten his words and, and see, I think he should have said, I'm doing a great work with my family and I cannot come down. Because according to this, the principles in this Bible, my family is supposed to be more, more important to me, a higher priority in my life than you are. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings. God said it. Take it up with him. And if I'm gone somewhere with my family and an emergency happens, it will break my heart that I can't be because I want to be everywhere all the time, but I can't do that. 
We have men. We have got other staff members. We've got people in this church that God has called to fill in the gap if I'm gone because I'm doing important work with my family and I cannot come down. Do you understand that? How this principle can change your life? If you're struggling with priorities, you need to get on your knees and ask God to make it real clear what you're supposed to do. Because there are other people who can lead this church. You tell me who else is called to lead my family besides me. Anyone? No. I'm doing an important work with my family, with my wife, and I can't come down to everything. Danny and I were talking about this last night, and she said, I'm kind of in a season of no because of what God's doing, because of our family, the situation we're in, what's going on. She said, I can't do everything right now. So you go back to the picture. You define it very clearly, and then the options become less. The decisions become easier because we know exactly what God has called us to do. Some of you, you're not doing anything for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not important to you. Some of you, you can't give financially to the kingdom of God because you're so in debt. And, and I don't believe it's because you're bad people. That's not what I think. I think your priorities are jacked. Singles, I believe some of you have standards. I believe you have a very clear picture of what marriage could be and what marriage should be and who and who you should be dating and who you shouldn't be dating. But sometimes you get lonely and the phone rings and if they're hot, you answer. If you're real lonely, it doesn't, they don't even have to be hot. I'm just being real. Y'all know it's true. But they don't fit the picture. You need to look at that caller ID. I don't care how hot they are. You need to say, I am doing an important work and I cannot come down. Because they don't fit the picture, right? Y'all may be saying it's easy for me. I was 26 years old before I got married. I, was, I went through some real, every friend of mine got married in the two years right after college. Some got married while I was in college. I was in all kinds of weddings. When you get married, Doug, my mom thought I was going to get married before I got out of high school. And then she got to the point she thought I was never getting married. I went through some really lonely times. And I kept going back to, I will not go to the bars to find women. I don't believe that's what God wants me to do. My brother, I was at my brother's church for a while. And man, we had this singles group that was like 12 people and, and 11 of them were going to be single forever. You know, that type of deal. I'm saying I'm the one that's going to be. They may have thought I was always going to be single. And uh, my brother kept trying to get me to go to this other church down the road because they had like 200 singles. He's like, you can find one there. Your odds are better. You know, that type of deal. My whole family was trying to get me married. But I was doing what I felt like God called me to do. Then I went and I served in Austin at a, at a small church. And, and every grandmother and their dog had somebody they wanted me to marry or meet. And, you know, oh, I've got the perfect one for you. And I was just like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've seen most of the people that y'all want to set me up with. And they don't fit the picture. Moms, your job is more important than just about any job on the planet. And I know sometimes you don't get to do all the things that some of your friends do. You're doing an important work and you cannot come down. 
and, and single, uh, stay-at-home moms, single moms, it doesn't matter. You're all important. If you're working, I'm not saying that, that only the stay-at-home moms are important. Your job is enormously important. The clearer picture you have of what God wants you to do, the fewer your options, the easier your decisions are. I told our children's workers last week, they were sitting here, and I said, there is not a job in this church that's more important than what you do on Sunday mornings. Loving on kids, telling them about Christ, and allowing their parents to sit in here and hear about the love of Christ. Dads, we sat in there today and we talked about very few of us had a clear picture of what a man should be. Not because our dads were necessarily bad men, but because they didn't know. My dad just did what his dad did, who did what his dad did. Some of us said we're here because we want to break the cycle. You're doing a very important work, and, and uh, we can't be those dads that just come home, we're cranky at the end of the day, and we don't want to be bothered because it's too important. Our kids are too important. That's actually our kids are a higher priority than our jobs. We've got to remember that. Guys that are in this band and girl, they're doing an enormously important work. And so they're up here rehearsing a lot of times when people are doing other things. Wednesday nights we have youth band and, and the teenagers that are in the band, they're, they're in here, they're doing an enormously important work and they don't always get to hang out with people out there. Greeters, those who, who fix breakfast, Ann and Cindy, you did a very important work this morning. And we are so glad that you didn't let anything else get in your way, like sleep, like Chad did. Small group leaders, I'm helping, aren't I, brother? <laughs> find, find out what God wants you to do and stick with it. And the Bible says you will be blessed. So here's your practical application. I think I put these on your listening guide. Would you pray for God to give you a vision for your future? And I think that everybody would do that. I'm not sure everybody will do this. Would you write down what God says? If you're single, you need to start describing what your marriage should look like. If you're married, you need to write down what your marriage should look like, what your parenting should look like. And then number three is, would you conform your life to the picture? Would you become the person that God designed you to become? The world desperately needs you to do it because nobody else can fulfill your role that God created you to do. The clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decisions. Let's bow. Father, I just want to thank you for giving us a, a picture of what church could be like and what church should be like. God, we're far from perfect. We haven't got it all figured out. But there's no place I'd rather be today than with this group of people. And however long you leave me here, God, I want to build this church into what you've called us to do. And I believe you've called some other Christ followers, mature Christ followers, to, to plant their lives here to help us with this mission. And I believe there are people within driving distance of, of New Life that haven't even heard of our church yet that you want us to reach. So give us a very clear picture of what each of us individually is supposed to do as a Christ follower, as a, as a member or attender of New Life Community Church. And then give us the courage 
when an option comes up to say, you know, that's a really good option, but I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your registration cards, if you would. Fill that out. On the back, you can write, write prayer concerns. But here's what I want you to write from today. Don't have anything specific. I want, I want you to write down the number one thing that God said to you through this message.